theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. We got to say our introductions first. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you today? I'm doing really well. We're going to talk about women of color in higher education. We're going to talk about leadership, and it's really exciting to uh, talk about uh, all of these advances. And, you know, women just aren't written about that much. I know. And not only are women not written about enough, women are not writing enough especially when we talk about nonfiction, which is why I'm very excited for us to talk to Dr. Gaetan Jean-Marie today. It was uh, Dr. Jean-Marie who kind of got me through my first couple of years in it higher administration. Wow, I'm, well, I'm glad we have this connection because she is, when she talks about her research, I, I really feel like our listeners will be inspired. So let's let's uh, introduce her. Dr. Gaetan Jean-Marie joins Rowan from the University of Northern Iowa, where since 2016, she served as Dean of the College of Education and the Richard O. Jacobson Endowed Chair of Leadership in Education. She also previously served as interim director of UNI's Center for Educational Transformation. Prior to joining UNI, Dr. Jean-Marie was chair of the Department of Educational Leadership, Evaluation and Organizational Development at the University of Louisville, my alma mater, where she also served as co-director of the Center for Economic Education. She also has held faculty positions at the University of Oklahoma and Florida International University. Dr. Jean-Marie earned her PhD in Educational Leadership and Cultural Studies from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where she also earned a post-baccalaureate certificate in Women's Studies. Her additional uh, background is a master's degree in criminal justice and law enforcement administration and a bachelor's degree in political science and government from Rutgers University in Newark. Wow, we welcome you to our show today. Thank Good you. Good morning, Dr. Good Jean-Marie. Morning. You are my personal rock star. Oh, you're kind. I appreciate it. You're so beautiful this morning. Thank you for being here. And same to you. We need lots of joy. In yes, we do. <laughs> joy in the morning. Yeah. Uh, 
and the reason that I say that you're my personal rock star is because, and before we talk about women of color in higher education, I really want to talk about this book, the book that you wrote. And uh, because this book got me through my first couple of years when I went from a chair uh, of a department in higher ed to being uh, a provost. And this book really got me through those uh, first couple of years. And the, the number of Black women who write nonfiction. So not only is the book itself important, but the fact that you wrote a nonfiction book is also important to me. And so the book that you did, Women of Color in Higher Education, is just as much as an anomaly as women who make up, you know, just a small amount of women in higher education at that level. And so I was just struck by the fact that there's so few women of color who are writing nonfiction. And not only did you do it, but the New York Times, they kept, they put this in the top 10. And I don't know if you know that, but that was amazing. So this is amazing work that you're doing in higher ed and the fact that you're writing about it. So before we go into women of color in higher ed, can you talk about the inspiration of writing the book? And can you tell us more about this book and the other editions? Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you today and share about my work. I recall it was a presentation. So my research is one of, it, one of the areas is on the intersection of gender, race, and leadership. And it stemmed from my dissertation work. And that, that's really the impetus for that work. And also personally, throughout my life, my educational experiences, I've come across women leaders from all walks of life who were influencing me in ways I didn't realize. So I'm always a student of my craft that I wanted to study. So it was through my dissertation work, and I know you'll touch on that. Well, hopefully we'll get to that. But it was my dissertation work then led to me continuing into the topic research on women in leadership. Hence the book several years later as a tenure track faculty, uh, tenured faculty, that I really wanted to capture the voices of women of color. And this, and what started out as a one volume led to two volume. And I really wanted to capture from the past because it's women of color, turbulence past, promise and future, and then women of color, new directions, challenges and new directions for the other volume. And we wanted to be sure we captured women of color in ways we have not thought about, not, Black women only or Asian American, this volume encapsulated the experience of women of color in just from different paths. So we reached out to folks we didn't know, scholars in the field to contribute. How has the field evolved in higher education, tenure track, administration, hence the work. We presented at a conference and came back and, and talked to an editor and, and said, why don't you think about of a book? And we ran for it. We ran, and, and I'll share also with you what led to other works, connections with women of color in the practice of, of engaging in that work. Let's talk about your dissertation research. Uh, what was your process and what kind of research did you do? 
Well, I was reading about the work of social justice in my program. So you referenced the cultural studies and educational leadership. So I, again, I wanted to connect theory to practice, which led to the exploration of the leadership discourses of women of color. And in, in my own synthesis of the literature, the voice that was what people would talk about, limited voice, was women of color in H historically Black colleges and universities. That was an area that I have no experience or, or educational experience in HBCUs. So this was also an opportunity to learn. And it led to my traveling across one state, 11 institutions, if I recall, and interviewed 19 women from women presidents, women deans, women attorneys, deans at different nursing, dean of college of ed, VPs, and then women mid-level. Well, I, wow, I was not only studying, but it was opening a whole world about women's work and what's the driver for them. Of the 19 for my dissertation, I utilized the 12 of the transcript and what I gravitated towards and did not anticipate, it was that gap in the literature. The women were talking about, they talked about being the first to integrate schools that decision and how their recollection of that experience informed their leadership practices as women presidents, as dean. Those pieces were so informative for me to hear tease out the social justice discourse in their personal experiences, educational experiences, to now inform how they support and lead at an institution. That was a pivotal, powerful moment influenced in my decision years later to go into administration. Oh, wow. That's, that's wonderful. So I talked a little bit about my experience when I became VPAA provost at a university and how this book really, really spoke to me. I suffered, I think, from what we call imposter syndrome at the time. And I didn't think that I was good enough to be in that position and that somehow I would be discovered, that I didn't know enough, you know, and, and I found myself doing a lot of things to, to compensate for that. Uh, I was working 12, 15 hour days, six days a week, you know, and after 10 years of being a chair, five years of being a provost, I was drained, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I needed a change. And, and I'm just wondering what all the women that you speak to and in your experience, do you find that women of color, we work harder trying to compensate, trying mm -hmm. to prove something and showing our worth? So I shared with you some of what I, you're bringing me back to think about my transcripts and the narratives and how powerful it was. So here I am, the researcher, but also sitting under the wisdom of women. For example, I can tell you one example of a dean who was a dean of College of Math and Science. She was, uh, I think, or even engineering. She remembers being the first, uh, going to class, her undergrad class. And her professor said, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Could you imagine being told, you're pursuing your degree, being told you do not belong in this class? She said, I stayed. And the, what they talk about their tribulations and how they use those tribulations to transcend what they do 
as women leaders. That's the power of their stories. So why it resonate that they're the first to integrate, the first to lead, the first woman president? What resonated for me is that I am standing on the shoulders of trailblazers who inspire me to do the work that I do. They broken through the barriers, but they are still barriers and how their work informed and also the work around social justice to really create educational access opportunities for students. That was powerful for me and continue to inform the work that I do. Well, tell us about your passions with social justice and how that has sprung into the work that you're doing now. So for me, I asked the question, who's not at the table? Whose voice is not represented? I have the opportunity to engage in conversations, to, to, to support and lead a college and to do that as part of a university. And I wanna be sure that what I'm addressing, the, the issues, the areas we have to, to tackle that we're also factoring in underserved population of students to ensure we're creating opportunities and access for them. Our faculty, I wanna also ensure that we represent and support the needs of everyone as much as possible. That's important for me to ask and even interrogate, push the boundaries, whose voice is not represented here. I have an obligation to ensure that we address and have those conversations. When we're talking about disparities, when we're creating opportunities to support, to provide those supports. Can you talk more about the diversification of women of color in higher education? And cause I, I do wanna talk to you later about our new hire at Governor State University. We actually hired our first African-American president. This is a female, so this is a, a strong black woman who's now come to Governor State University. And this is a huge change for Governor State University who where most of our presidents, I think all of our previous presidents have been of Jewish descent. Mm -hmm. And I'm inspired by the appointment and I'm especially the bravery of our board to make mm -hmm. such a decision, but I'm also a little fearful of how she will be accepted and the opportunities to lead. So I just want your perspective as we talk about the diversification of women and of color and the opportunity, because it's more than just you being a strong leader, but those that you lead have to give you the opportunity, right? That's right. So women, for women in leadership, it's both that paradox of gender and leadership. And having to na navigate this outside or within, I I'm part of the context, part of the organizations, but do we truly embrace the presence and contributions of women in leadership roles? And then when you add race to it, the dual, the double, both gender and race, those also compound in, how do you navigate that? How does society, how does the institution uh, receive the individual? What will be the support? How will they navigate? And we bring our experiences and we bring the commitment. That, that's part of the work. You're qualified, you're hired, now engaging in that work. And, and the, sometimes the underlying isms, the racism, sexism, 
And that's what I came across in my dissertation, through my dissertation work with women at HBCUs. But they're in this context and what they shared with me, even in an, in an HBCU context or PWI context, those isms permeated and having to work through those challenges, through those barriers, they still permeate. And the more we create access and opportunity for the presence of women, we start to normalize the organization that we are creating welcoming the unwelcome. That was a piece that I wrote an article that was a byproduct of because of their experiences, what they decided to do, how they're going to shift and change the landscape. We are going to welcome the students, the less voice. And that's why I shared with you earlier, I'm asking the questions whose voice is not at the table. Yeah, welcoming the unwelcome because that's how we retain them, right? That's right. And we create the space to say, we really want you to be here. You're a part of us. Now that also may mean, how do we differentiate the support? Because if the access, if they're the, the opportunity, they were the divergent pathways, whether they had limited access or more other students had more access, how do we create, differentiate the support students need, faculty need to help them be successful? Yeah, you talk about that table and it's, definitely so much of a metaphor. I mean, we come around a holiday table, we welcome everyone. Part of my dissertation research kind of unveiled or helped me rediscover how important invitational language was. Mm -hmm. And when you ask somebody to join you, it's way different than a, a principal or an administrator just telling you to do something. But you were also talking about, it's not just a matter of being at the table, it's being heard. And, you know, are you invited just to the table to be seen? Or do you have something that people are going to value and share? And you talked about, uh, you talked to a number of women of color. What did you learn about their experiences at the table or looking in at the table? What was most impactful? So the mission that I'm on, if I can use the word mission that I'm on, the journey that I'm on is asking and challenging others to speak up. It's not enough to be at the table. What will you do at the table? Will you speak up? But even before you arrive at the table, what's the preparation? I was recently talking, had the opportunity, one of my colleagues invited me to, to, to guest lecture in his class higher ed class to our students. And, and I actually at a doctoral hood in my alma mater a couple of years ago, I believe, I spoke about speaking up and, and use a, a couple of tenets around that because it's in our graduate programs, in our safe spaces, we get to practice to speak up because when we're in settings where we're the only person, the only voice at the table, if you didn't practice in your safe spaces, you may miss the opportunity to speak up when you really need to do so. So I'm on this journey, this, this mission to encourage people speak up because it manifests in faculty meetings where faculty wanna speak up, but they don't. Where did they practice to speak up? Don't miss, I actually called the, that, that speech, the, 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 it was don't miss the moment. 
Oh, I like that. Well, well, tell us about those moments. When are those moments and how do people grab them? It's that voice that says, or that gut feeling, you should say something, mm, this is wrong. Speak, but mm-mm, I don't know what will they think. Those moments, we have them. But the thing I want to place emphasis, if we're not practicing speaking up, we may miss the moment when we really need to do so, that critical, pivotal moment to do so. I should have said something. I did. I missed it. We don't always get that moment to speak up. And what I mean about that, so I, I, I can think of examples. I'm, I'm likely the person, if, if two kids are interacting, I'll be the, the person to say, don't do that. And I didn't realize that was practice on the ground. So now when I'm at the table in a leadership role, well, I disagree with that. Let's think about that. What about that perspective? What is the preparation? So the doctoral work that I've done or the readings that I engage in, these are all part of the process because I'm also educating myself. I'm reading my more recent book. I'm part of a book club, what I'm reading about being an anti-racist. Think about the climate, the context we're in. So I'm educating, continuing to learn and grow as a person myself. So I can also be challenged and challenge others to not, for example, to, to be anti-racist. Right. That's, a, that's, that's, I'm adding this repertoire to my leadership tool, to my discourse. But where's the preparation, the learning that's occurring so you can be comfortable and be ready to engage that work. The work of social justice is not, oh, speak up for social justice. What's the action? What's the walk? And you're right, timing is very important. And I imagine this is something that you have to do in mentorship with faculty. You know, I remember when I was an assistant faculty, we didn't have, we were not empowered to speak up. And especially as a minority, at the institution where I worked, I was the first African-American tenured faculty. And so it didn't necessarily feel like a safe space. So, you know, we were guided to talk to someone who was tenured to be our voice, to have that protection. So I think this is something that would have to occur in faculty mentorship. And that's so important. Talk about how you inform faculty and how this impacted how you lead faculty, especially assistant faculty who don't have their tenure. I'm having the conversation about speaking up. I'm also, even in my silence, I may pose a question someone else posed or the known voices who would speak. I do what I practice. I go inward, silent. There's lots of value in silence to create opportunities for others to speak. Any others? And I will, what about you, so-and-so? I saw just right now on this platform we're on, this virtual realm. You have to also read the room, pay attention to the, to the visual. What are they communicating? What, and asking, giving, creating opportunities for others to speak. What do you think? Anybody else has anything else to add to this? I welcome your feedback because people aren't always sure if they can speak up. And the other thing I do want to point in the uh, commitment to not miss a moment to speak up, what I'm also aware and have become cognizant in doing so, we would be creating opportunities for individuals who are in that space with us to join in solidarity with us or we join in solidarity with them. That person who may have observed you or me speaking up, wow, 
this person, I, I share that, that, that perspective. Next time, I'll also speak up. There's so much to this that we may not unpack today, but what I do want to place emphasis in a society where you see le levels of complicit taking place, that is a train in a socialization that is years in the making. In the same way, speaking up, seizing the moment is also socialization preparation years in the making. So will we be intentional about speaking up, but what will be the preparation? Where do we practice in our safe spaces? Where do in conversation in our safe spaces with our loved ones, someone may have said something you disagree. Did you just let it go because they're family, they didn't mean it? Or did you say, I disagree with you? I don't think that's appropriate for you to say. That's a safe space to practice. They may frown upon you, but I still practice and you now giving someone something to think about. And I can give you an example about that. Yeah, share. <laughs> Please. We, we had a gathering uh, we, wearing our mask, celebrating my oldest brother because he's been seven, eighth month. He's, he has special needs and we really wanted to do something special for him. My family, we came from different uh, uh, out of state to do a gathering, a birthday, his 58th birthday. And then we were having conversation as a family member, uh, just laugh stories. One of my siblings said something that was culturally insensitive, referring to she made a joke and I said, no, I disagree with that. And I left it at that. Didn't think about it, left it at that. She sent a text to the family. We had a text and I should say to you, I'm sure I've heard the story previously and I didn't step up, speak up. I'm gonna stay along that theme. The power in sharing this with you is she sent the family a text and said, I reflected on that moment in the conversation where I was being insensitive, culturally insensitive. I wanna apologize for that and I will never tell that story again. Thank you, Gaetan, for bringing that to my attention. I, and she said, and we would call her Chinese and I, I believe the, the, the story, but her name is Charisna and we would call her Chinese. She said, I no longer wanna be called Chinese. I wanna be called Charisna, my name. That, that's also inappropriate. So to my point to you earlier, in my speaking up, it, enacted, it enabled her to also speak up, to address something that we were doing that was insensitive and didn't bring attention to it. I didn't plan on it, but I was in a safe space. It bothered me, it was inappropriate. And I sat and left it at it. Didn't realize the impact it would have thereafter. Most of who will listen to this are educators, but many of those educators are parents. And I hope that parents take something away. And you may know something about this, but I know growing up when I did in an African-American household and even in a Latino household, we're taught not to question. And so I, I really like the way you talked about being able to lead and also being silent and being able to ask those questions that cause others to reflect and a way of holding them accountable. You know, I think of a task force that I'm on with the state as they try to come up with different pathways for teachers 
to get into the profession because we have a teacher shortage and to attract. And often those pathways really lower the standards of becoming a teacher. And so I recall, you know, you, you, you want to be careful because you don't want, you want people to listen. You want to listen and being abrasive will have a very different react response and reaction. So asking, I asked the question, so what schools do you think will end up with those least prepared students? And so I think your technique of asking the questions as opposed to you giving the answer or your opinion can be very, very effective. So I want to, I just want to thank you for that because it's not just for teachers, but I think this is also for parents and how we raise our children to stand up and to maybe ask those important questions. And I agree with having that model. We can, we can probably all think of times when we didn't say something. And I think in my reflection, I regret more not saying something than when I uh, actually intervened in a situation. It's sad because you think, oh, I, I could have helped that student in that situation, or I didn't think it was right that the teacher was reprimanding that student in that case, but not saying something really has a strong impact and it weighs very heavily. Let me encourage you. The recognition and the reflection you've done that I didn't do it now at that point. What's most important is what will you do moving forward? I, I want us to caution of blaming ourselves or feeling guilty. There's a tipping point that happens of, I can do differently. It's what you can do moving forward is what I'm interested in. It's the, that, that's how we can inf influence what we do practice. So I want to be very clear that I didn't always speak up. So I want to be very clear. I don't want to give this false sense of notion that I was the child who always, no, no. I, I talk about the preparation. What are those experiences that shaped us? And part of the experiences I talked about the women of color, the HBCU presidents and the attorneys, and then, but also life experiences. So there were moments I didn't speak up in that little voice or that gut. You missed that moment. So I want to be very clear. Let's not, good to reflect. It's what will we do moving forward? Now that you know, how cognizant will you be and you're present in the conversation, in the engagement, and you're listening to pause and reflect and engage with the person. That's what's critical to, to the work moving forward. And I've, I like what you were saying about the, being that model and showing that solidarity when someone sees someone intervene, it causes them to reflect. It causes them to perhaps take that pivotal moment in the future. So how do we continue to capture the stories of that good work that is happening in higher education with social justice in our K-12 schools so that people have those models if they're not seeing the models, perhaps they can read about the models that are the good work that is happening. 
And we have to write about those models. I, we do, we have to capture those stories. I wanted to put in, the, in their own words, their experiences, because the, and, and it's in, in the impact, the, uh, some of my articles around my dues are the most referenced uh, about the work because of the participants' experience, because of the impact it's had on them and others as we move that work forward. There's much to be done. We have to do more than just talk about social justice and equities. We have to walk it. We have to walk it in our lives and our practices. It has to be part of who we are. But we're also confronting the discourse of resistance to creating opportunities, access for others. We have to be ready to counter that. That's real. As we become increasingly diverse, there's resistance to embracing the diversity. So we're banning people. Right. We're marginalizing people. And these are well-meaning people who we love and endear and who have certain beliefs that support, perpetuate, creating inequities. Where's the push to say that's not okay? We need to stand up. And the speaking up, and I'll give you one quick example, was the young lady, the 12-year-old young lady who video recorded what happened to Floyd. That was her speaking up. She saw an injustice. Uh -huh. I'm interpreting what she did. She saw an injustice and it was wrong. Her best way to capture speaking up was to video record so the rest of the world can see this happen and we can have this moment of the protest of speaking up as a nation, as countries. That's an example of speaking up. If she didn't capture that, it would be another killing. It's not only in the boardroom, it's not only in our classroom, it's in our day to day. That young lady helped us to see injustice because she sees the moment to say, this is wrong, let me capture it. Yes, thank you for saying that because this is, this is really like therapy for me. We're enjoying listening to you and, and it feels like therapy. And I just really hope that others are listening to this. And I mean, this is just so powerful for leaders and all teachers because teachers are leaders, all teachers are leaders. And I'm, I'm really, back to the place where you talked about welcoming the unwelcome. And that's really sticking with me. And this is a challenge that teachers of color are facing at all grade levels. They face this challenge when they go into their teacher preparation programs because we have so very few minority teacher candidates. And how do we provide support for them so that they are successful? You know, we talked about our new president, an African-American female. How do we, how do Amy and I, how do we provide support for her so that she's successful? Because our student's success is really dependent on her success. So we have an obligation and, and I don't anticipate this being an easy road for her. You know, she, she's the first. And I don't anticipate it being easy, but I do feel, and I want to thank you for that, that we have an obligation, we have a responsibility of helping in that success. So I just, I just want to thank you for those words of wisdom and giving us something to reflect on and to think about and to practice 
on a daily basis, not just, you know, as you say, it doesn't have to be in the boardroom, but Amy and I are constantly challenging each other. So I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate your words of wisdom. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I used the model lead with me. I recognize I'm the dean. I get that. I understand their responsibilities part. But I also believe in the concept others are leading with me because we play different roles. We wear different hats. So as you think about your president, how you can best support is for you to also lead and provide that support within the scope of your work. That is important because we're here to support all students. When we don't do that, it's going to come to her. But if we've done our part, fulfill our responsibilities, our obligation, we're providing the support. And it's the collective endeavor as an institution to support faculty, to support students, to support staff, to support the broader community. But if it's the vision, the agenda of one person, that's difficult to move because an organization involves both leader and follower, people as part of the system. And, and it's us doing the work in our respective roles. I have a university president, but he needs me to lead as a dean because if I'm not leading, it's gonna create problems for him. So what's my role as a dean to fulfill my responsibilities as a dean? What's your role in, in, in the positions that you hold? But I love where you're going with vision. So as we kind of fold the conversation, kind of bring it, bring it to an end, I have a couple of last questions. What is your vision for the work you are doing in the writing that you publish now? My vision is bringing people together for a common purpose. And we get to define what that common purpose, but that common purpose has to also be inclusive of diverse individuals' perspectives. I want us to be able to transform communities. Where I am currently, what excites me about my work is the opportunity in the context of K-12, uh, P-12 education in higher ed. We're nested in a community at an institution where we can support rural, suburban, and urban contexts to make a difference in the lives of students who come we, we, uh, to our institutions to help them have the knowledge and skills and also be passionate about their life's purpose and can make a difference. Bring in, so that's my vision that I see my gift is to bring people together for a common purpose, to create a better world, to really address, to help diversify the teaching profession, to help create high quality leaders to really be the ones that their, their, their ethics, their dispositions, that they're here to serve, that servant leadership. That's what I saw, that's what I study, is to serve others. That whole body of literature, servant leadership, green leaf, it came out of the business sector before it filtered into education. What's that, what does that look like in our context? And what does it mean to really lead through the lens of equity, justice, walking the talk of that work? So that work, I'm still fueled by that work through my scholarship, through the work that I do as a leader and embracing these challenges we're in, the pandemic, but also the social unrest. What's the opportunity in this crisis for us to create better quality schools? What will we do for the students who are marginalized and having to learn through this remote virtual? 
there's going to be a broader divine opportunity loss is what's coming in, in, out in the literature. And, and lastly, as I think about our kids, if they are resilient enough to walk through their neighborhoods, sometimes hard challenge neighborhoods, that is enough for us teachers to build upon. If they come to school, that's their resilience. How do we build on, upon that? Meet them where they are. Learn about who they are, about their community to help inform us how we can support them. I am so inspired by you. I also want to know, though, who inspires you? What are you, you reading now? Well, I'll, I'll, I don't know if you can see it. My, I'm part of a book club, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. I'm part of a book club with my university. It resonates so much with me. The chapters are one title chapters. And, but you get so enthused, drawn in by the experiences and the issues he's raised. So I'm adding the language of anti-racist to my, my language, because I, I met him a couple years ago. It's either you're racist or anti-racist. He made it, it's, he's making it clear. He made it very clear, made it very clear. And I'm also reading, so you want to talk about race. I'm doing that. I listened to it to my car. So, cause that's where we are in this moment. Even my stuff, how do I continue to grow? So I don't become complicit or silent as things are happening around us. So how am I also growing and continuing to educate myself? So you asked me who inspired me. They come from all walks of life, but I would have to start with my mom, Mama Grace. Mama Grace didn't go to school, doesn't have a formal education, but she is the, the most educated person I know. Her and my dad, my dad had a fourth grade education. He's, he's deceased, raised nine kids. We had 12, we, I'm one of 12. Three did not survive. Three died late, earlier in life. And, and I, I have five sisters and three brothers. So Mama Grace, and she was a, a driver. I have image as a little girl, 11 years old. This is a woman who doesn't, didn't speak English. Still, she understand, doesn't write. Could you imagine on Saturday morning, I'm taking a train with my mama to go to New York City for her to go shopping so she can also sell clothes herself. I remember that run where she was driven going. I'm trying to keep up with my mama. And that's, I remember those incidents because she was a driver. She did not let her limitations inhibit her from driving for success. That image stays with me. But I also have other individuals, sister friends, people from all walk of life. I talked to a mentor of mine when I started at the University of Oklahoma, Mary John O'Hare, talked to her yesterday, just connecting. She's influenced me. My mentors, and I wrote this about that in, the, in, in volume two, that your mentors come, mentoring networks is what I talk about. And men, women, the folks in, who are at different stages in my life influenced me. I'm also part of a, 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 a group, a woke up, part of a group, um, advancing women of color in academia, we were writing about it. So we were a support system, all different walks of life. African-American, I'm of Haitian-American descent, Asian-American, Indian-American, coming together and doing this work, joining in solidarity. It's so important we don't navigate this journey on our own. Who do we call upon? And I'm also a woman of faith. So if you're gonna, my faith is also important for me. Faith family and friends is what I talk about, the, the three Fs. That, sounds, that sounds like a new book. 
<laughs> we'll see. We're working on something. Like a new book, but we certainly thank Mama Grace for you. Thank you. Uh, for building such a strong woman. Uh, I have been inspired by every word. Uh, this was definitely lessons learned for me. So I want to thank you for that personally. Thank you so much for the opportunity and your interest. And you shared with me something I didn't know about my work. You engage in this work and you hope it will make a difference. It has made a difference. It has definitely made a difference. And, and, and we thank you. And I, and I just want to encourage you. You're making a difference in the work you're doing supporting others, the outreach, to keep this going, this momentum about the collective making a difference in our society. So thank you for doing this work. Well, we appreciate you being with us today and our listeners will love all of your insights and your, your examples and your advice. You know, it's not enough to be at the table what will we do to prepare our voices to speak up when we're there? But yet there is still those moments that we can lead by being silent and listening and really reflecting on the best questions to ask and the best statements to make. So we really appreciate you being here today and we look forward to reading your next volume, your next publication. Yes. And, and, and I'll do my best to spread joy today. Thank you. Let's do that. And stay safe and healthy. Okay. Stay safe. Enjoy your day. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning, Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.